At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying his word together. Today, we invite you to tune in for our current series, Reveal, Stories with Purpose as we study the parables of Jesus, reading stories with the power to reveal God's truth in our lives. Uh, so this week, we're actually closing out our series called Revealed, uh, Stories with a Purpose. And what we've been doing in the last few weeks is we've been looking at the gospel of Luke, and we've been looking at the stories or parables of Jesus. What we learned is that a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning or a story that has a lesson to it. And so as we've been looking at these different stories, we've been learning different lessons that Jesus has been teaching us. Uh, next week, we're actually going to be starting a new series in the book of Psalms. It's called Assembly Required. And we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter one, and we're going to be diving into what is it in this life that is blessed? What is it in this life that truly makes us fulfilled? What is it in this life that truly causes us to have joy and freedom? And I'm going to spoil it. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ and walking in his ways and staying away from the way of the wicked. But make sure you come back next week. If it's your first week, we want to invite you on back. Well, like I said today, we're closing out our series called Revealed Stories with a Purpose. And as we've looked at these parables in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen that all these parables are addressed to one audience. Now, does anyone remember what that audience was? The Pharisees, good job, awesome, you guys are following along. And so as we've looked at the Pharisees, we've been getting to know them better each and every week. And what we've learned about the Pharisees is that they're self-righteous and they think that their good deeds and their keeping of the law and their legalism is what declares them in right standing with God. Uh, these guys, though, you have to remember, they were the religious elite of that day. They were the Bible guys. They were the guys who would quote you chapter and verse and would tell you what the Word of God says and how you need to live your life based upon it. You know, there were kids who actually grew up looking at the Pharisees, hoping that one day that they would be a Pharisee. They'd go to school to learn the Scriptures in order that one day they could be a rabbi or a Pharisee, that they could be uh, somebody who is seen as holy and righteous in the eyes of God, they believed. But we see continually Jesus confronting the Pharisees. Jesus says harsher things to the Pharisees than any other audience in the entire scripture. Last week, we actually saw uh, that the Pharisees were trusting in themselves to declare themselves righteous. Now, just to give you an idea of what that looks like, it'd be like saying to God, God, I know you're the holy ruler and creator of the universe. I know that you control time and all things work out according to the counsel of your will. Uh, but God, have you just looked at me for just a minute? Have you stopped and, and stopped, you know, controlling everything and looking at everything and just realized all of the good deeds that I'm doing? Look at how much of these laws I'm keeping. And we've even added laws on top of that. And it really started them to, they, they started getting very puffed up with knowledge and they started getting puffed up in their pride and arrogance so much so that they were looking down on other people because of their right standing with God, which they assumed. But they based it on their good deeds and Jesus continually confronted that. You know, I think one of the reasons why Jesus probably confronts the Pharisees so harshly is because so many people believed what they were saying. Because they were the religious leaders. And Jesus is trying to show them that there is a new way. And so as we've been looking at these parables, he's been confronting their self-righteousness. And once again today in our story, he's going to confront them with a surprising and shocking reality. So please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. 
Luke chapter 16. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, feel free to pull out any electronic device that you have and go to Luke chapter 16. Today we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 31. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Now, as I've talked about before, as we look at the text of Scripture, we never take verses by themselves or even parables by themselves. We always want to know what's going on in the context of the Scripture that we're talking about. And so we're looking at the Gospel of Luke. And in chapter 16, Jesus has been talking about how we invest in this life. He's been talking about the parable of this dishonest manager and uh, the person who did well with the things that God had given him and the person who did not do well with the things that God had given him. He's been talking about what should we invest our time, talents, and treasures into into this life. Namely, he's been talking about money. Luke chapter 16 verse 13 says this, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He's made a statement right there. You can only have one master, and you cannot serve God and money. Well, then the text continues in Luke chapter 16, 14. It says, the Pharisees were lovers of money. It says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard these things and they ridiculed him. So Jesus is teaching about a proper view of our finances and how we steward things well. And the Pharisees hear it and they start to ridicule him. Now, they don't state their reason why they're ridiculing him, but the text pulls back the curtain on that. In verse 14, it says, the Pharisees were lovers of money. Now, you have to hear something here. You have to, this is why the text is so powerful. You've got to know the context of what's going on. The, the passage before has just said, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Then the text says, the Pharisees were lovers of money. So they've chosen their master. Their master is money. And when Jesus says the statement, either you will hate the one and love the other, the one that the Pharisees love is money, therefore God is who they hate. Isn't that interesting? They do all of these things in order to be in right standing with God. But if we really peel back the scriptures, we see that they did all of these things in order to get power, prestige, position, money, all of these things. They wanted to sit at the best places and the tables and the best parties and make the most money. This is what the Pharisees were all about. It was their God. They looked like religious people. They looked like godly men, but what they actually were, Jesus calls them hypocrites, which means actors. They were acting the part of a godly person, yet in their heart, they loved money more than God. And so what we're going to see is Jesus confronts the Pharisees in this fallacy. And what we're going to see Jesus is teaching us is that real faith obeys God's word. Right? So I want you to follow that. Real faith obeys God's word. Hebrews chapter 11 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, certainty of things not yet seen. Believing that there's a reality that is to come. Believing that Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation. Faith. Real faith obeys God's word. See, there are many people who claim to be Christians in this world. 
Uh, depending on what poll you look at, 65 to 80% of people will claim to be Christians. They'll claim that they believe in God, and, they, and because of that, they, uh, they're Christians. Now, it's diminishing every single day because we have this rise of this religious group called the nuns, which means that they claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. But the beautiful thing about that is that at least they're admitting that they don't truly know God. It's a good place to start. Because if somebody says, yeah, I really don't believe in God, then it's easier to talk to that person than somebody who has been vaccinated with the gospel. They've gotten just enough religiosity in order to think that they're saved and that they're good. The reality is, is that we see that real faith obeys God's word. The truth of the matter is that Jesus says to Peter, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, our deeds are not what saves us, but our deeds are what shows that we're saved. So we're going to look at that text today, and this is Jesus going to share a story with the Pharisees, a story of a rich man and a poor man. And what we're going to see is in this story, one of these two men is going to be surprised by the reality of hell. So let's go ahead and look at this story, Luke chapter 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. The first reality that we see from Jesus is that our final destiny is the result of our belief. Our final eternal destiny is a result not of our works, not of the good deeds that we did, not of uh, our, our nationality, not of anything like that, but is based upon our belief. What do you believe in? So Jesus, he, he tells this story and he introduces two characters. The first character he introduced is a rich man. And he says that this rich man, uh, he's, he's wearing fine linen every single day. He's dressing in purple and he feasted sumptuously. Now let me paint a picture for you. This guy got up every single day and he put on his finest clothes. This guy didn't have a casual Friday. He didn't own a pair of sweatpants. This guy got up every single day and he actually put on his Armani suit with whatever uh, Movado watch, and I don't know any other things to say because I'm not that into fashion. But like whatever is the greatest fashion, you can imagine this man had it. That was this purple linen because it took so long to dye this purple. And this meant you were rich if you had this purple linen. And then it says he feasted sumptuously every single day. This dude, every day for him was a cheat day. Every single day he ate everything in the entire house. He had so much money that he, he, he would... He would take all of his wealth and he invested it into getting the greatest uh, beef and the greatest wines and the greatest side dishes or whatever else it was. And they had these huge feasts and he did this every single day. And this is what it says of this man. 
Now, it's interesting. You have to stop here because you have to know what the Pharisees would have been thinking here. That you have thought what the Pharisees would have been thinking here. The Pharisees would have heard this and they would have thought that the rich man was blessed by God. See, they had their own what's called prosperity gospel. It's actually something that is in America today and you hear it taught in some pulpits and the reality is is that it's a complete fallacy and what this teaching is is that if you are in God's favor, then you will have health and you will have wealth and you will have all the greatest things that this world has to offer because if God truly loves you and he truly has favor upon you, then he'll give you houses and cars and all of the greatest things. But if we just look at the Bible for a second, we see that the Apostle Paul didn't have houses and cars and all the greatest things. We see Peter, who was crucified upside down, who didn't have houses and cars and all the greatest things. We see Jesus Christ himself, who died on a cross, who didn't have all the greatest things. He didn't have a place to lay his head. So what happens here is the Pharisees are hearing this, and because of this lens that they're looking through of this prosperity gospel, they're actually thinking, wow, this man has great favor with God. In fact, they're like, man, you know what? I would love to be that guy. And they think of this great man to be aspired to. But Jesus continues and he introduces another character. He says, and at his gate was laid a poor man. Now you have to understand this word laid. It doesn't quite capture what's going on here. He was actually cast at the gate of the rich man. Now you have to think not like a tiny gate, not like a a gate in your garden. This is a huge fortress. This is an estate with a gigantic gate that this man is cast before. The reason why this poor man is probably cast is because most likely he's paralyzed and he doesn't have the ability to get there himself. And he has some friends who bring him there and put him there hoping that the rich man must might just have mercy on him. Listen to how it describes this poor man covered with sores and who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. So Lazarus is not only paralyzed, but he is sitting there covered with sores, most likely because of his inactivity. These sores have come upon him. And and to make matters worse and to add insult to injury, there's actually a pack of roaming wild dogs that are coming and they're licking his sores, which is causing them not to be healed. And it's causing him to be ceremonially unclean in the law so he couldn't go and worship at the temple. Well, the rich man's life is the best possible life that they could have thought of. The poor man's life is the worst possible life they could have thought of. It says he desired to feed from the scraps that fell from the rich man's table, the crumbs or the bread. Now, to really understand this, you have to understand how they used to eat back then. They'd have these huge feasts outside. And uh, unlike our society where where sanitation is very uh, well done and where you can wash your hands and you can have a lot of towels to dry your hands off, they didn't have all this stuff. And they walked around in sandals and it was a very dusty culture. And what would happen is you get very dirty. So they figured out a solution to be able to clean off their hands. They would wash their hands and then they'd take their old stale bread and they'd wipe their hands on it. And then at the end, they'd throw it underneath the table. This is the bread that the poor man desired to have. Kind of breaks your heart, doesn't it? Kind of breaks your heart when you think of this rich man. Kind of breaks your heart when you think about just the place that he is at. We see two men described. One who is the rich man. He has all the greatest things in life. 
and we see one who is the poor man. He has all the worst things in life. He has absolutely nothing at all. And the Pharisees are thinking, well, of course the rich man is the one whom God's favor is upon. It's interesting here, though, because there's something I didn't read previously about this rich man. I'm about this poor man. See, the rich man is described as a certain rich man, but the poor man has a name. The poor man's name is Lazarus. Now, this is the only character that Jesus names in all of his parables. And his name is Lazarus. Now, it's very important that Jesus named him for two reasons. One is the meaning of the name. Lazarus means God is my help. Lazarus means God is my help. The second thing is to show how God values this poor man. You see, the rich man is not given a name, but the poor man is given a name. Jesus, in giving this man a name, gives him value. But what we see is we see two characters that are introduced. And we see what their lives on earth are about. So Jesus first starts talking about their lives on earth. And what we see is we see a rich man who his main focus in life is power, prestige, position, and pleasure. Everything that he could ever want, he uses everything that he can get in order to obtain it. He wants all of the greatest things and he will use everything, all of his resources to make this life just that great. Well, we see a poor man who none of us would want to be. None of us would want to be sitting at this gate begging with sores and dogs licking us and all of these horrific descriptions, not even getting any bread from the rich man's table. While both of these men are in different positions, the poor man's status cannot be changed by himself. But, he, but you have to remember what has happened at the beginning of this story. The poor man is cast at the gates of the rich man. And he longs to just have some crumbs from that table. But we see no mercy is offered from the rich man to the poor man. What that does, it, it peels back what's going on with this rich man. It peels back where his heart is. You see, in the same way that the Pharisees thought this man was the man who God's favor was truly upon the rich man may have thought, because of everything I have, God's favor is upon me. But what he really believed in was his wealth, his business savvy. He believed in his ability to throw a party. He believed in pleasure. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Live life for today, and isn't that what our culture tells us? Isn't that what our culture tells us? Our culture says live life for today. And the reason why our culture says live life for today is because they cannot think of a reality that is to come. But while Jesus starts off talking about the life here on earth, there's something that's going to happen in just a minute that completely changes this story. And that's what we're really focusing on today. But what I want us to examine is the heart of the rich man. 
See, the Pharisees, they kept all of the laws and they were very good to tithe above and beyond. And they fasted twice a week and they prayed all the time. But all of it was for themselves and they never really showed the heart of God. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Matthew chapter 22. uh, And what we saw is that uh, the, the Pharisees are described and talked about as these people who are keeping the very minutia of the law. But they're forgetting about the heart of the law and the heart of God, which is one of justice and mercy and faithfulness. True faith obeys God's word. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do we have hearts of mercy? When we hear stories like this, do we just not only get sad and have our heart broken, but do we say, how can I help them out? I've been very challenged this week as I've looked at this text, just what am I doing in order to help those are poor and needy. James says that if you're somebody who claims to be a Christian and your brother or sister comes to you and says, I'm, uh, I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, and you take and be like, all right, brother or sister, come over here. I'm going to pray for you. Dear God, I just thank you for this brother and sister. I pray you bless them. All right, you go ahead. Go on out the door. And you don't do what you can do in order to meet that person's needs. What kind of faith is that? The principle that we're talking about here is living out our faith. Going to church doesn't save you. Tithing doesn't save you. Having parents who are Christians doesn't save you. None of these things save you. Your humanitarian efforts, the fact that you served in the Peace Corps, the fact that you think your good deeds are going to outweigh your bad deeds, the fact that you give to a lot of really good organizations, all of these things are nice, but they're not going to save you. The only way to salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. And we have to ask ourselves the question, are we living out the word of God? Have you ever just took this book and looked at it and thought, this is the very words of God. That's sobering, right? It's sobering to take it and just be like, these are God's words. Yet so many times we don't open up his word. And so many times when we do open up his word, we see things written in them that make us uncomfortable and we go, he didn't really mean that. He did really mean that. And we're called as those who have real faith to obey God's word in every single area of our lives. We submit ourselves to it. That is a follower of Jesus, is one who surrenders their life to Christ and lives their life based on his word. But the text continues from focusing on their life to starting to focus on what happens after we die. That's one of the greatest questions of society is what happens after we die? There's documentaries and there's stories and there's shows and there's accounts that try to answer the question of what happens after we die. Well, would you like to hear from the very mouth of Jesus what happens after we die? Yes, we do. So let's look at Luke 16 as we uh, look at Verse 22, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in ha- and in Hades, being in torment, 
he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now put yourself in the shoes of the Pharisee. The whole time you've been thinking that this rich guy is the one who has God's favor, who's got it all together. And Jesus says, the poor man, Lazarus, dies and he is carried by angels to Abraham's side. Now you have to understand that in the Bible, there's only a few people who are actually whisked off to heaven. First is Enoch in, in Genesis, and it says that he walked with God and he was no more. He was in such walk with God, he just walked into heaven. Then we see Elijah, he's, he's carried by a chariot of fire into heaven. And then we see Lazarus in this story is carried by angels into the side of Abraham. Now again, you have to think with the mind of a Jew, of a Pharisee. When you hear the name Abraham, you hear the name of the top dog, superstar, number one guy of that day. Abraham was the guy. Abraham was the guy that back in Genesis chapter 15, God actually, uh, he, he laid down the nation of Israel. Israel through and he chose Abraham and Israel as God's chosen people and he was revered by the Pharisees and Abraham if you got to be by his side that was a huge accomplishment it was a huge place of honor because proximity to a person who is of fame caused you to be seen in a position of honor and the Pharisees must have thought well if this poor man is gets to be at Abraham's side what's going to happen to the rich man and the shocker, the rich man died and he was buried. Again, this is probably something to mention his wealth, that he had a great funeral and he was buried in a mausoleum and he had all of the greatest ornaments all over his grave. But then it says where the rich man ends up. It says the rich man also died and was buried and in Hades being in torment. So word Hades can also be translated as hell. The idea comes from the word Gehenna, which in their society was a garbage dump that constantly burned and the fire and the flame never went out. Brothers and sisters, hell is real. Hell is a reality. Did you know that Pew Research did a, a, a survey and all of those who, of all those who pro, uh, proclaim to be uh, Christians and believe in God, 20% of them did not believe in a literal reality of hell. But here's the thing. There's somebody who cared a lot about teaching about hell and it was Jesus Christ himself. Did you know that Jesus actually talks about hell more than he does heaven? Yet so many times in our churches, we don't even want to mention it. It's a true reality. Listen to how Jesus describes hell. He says it's a place of eternal torment. It's a place of unquenchable fire where the worm does not die, where people gnash their teeth in anguish and regret and from which there is no return even to warn loved ones. He calls hell a place of outer darkness and he compares it to Gehenna, which was a trash dump outside the walls of Jerusalem where trash was burned and maggots abounded. You know that Jesus talks about hell more than he does about heaven. And there's no denying that Jesus Christ himself warns people against the realities of hell. And the truth of the matter is we need to know about hell because it completely changes the rest of the way we view scripture. We have to understand that there must be punishment for Satan and the demonic forces and sin. 
But the reason that we don't talk about hell is because it's very uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable. R.C. Sproul, probably one of the greatest theologians of all time, he's a very solid man of God. I highly recommend his book, The Holiness of God. It will change the way you view God. He was asked one time, what is the hardest doctrine that you ever preached? He said, hell. Because it's difficult and it's hard to think about a place of eternal torment. But let me ask you this question. If there was no punishment for wickedness and sin, would God truly be just and would he truly be good? No. He wouldn't. And I'm just looking at the very words of Jesus and what he said. So if that makes you uncomfortable, if that makes you frustrated or angry, you can take it up with Jesus. I just read you his words. The reality is that we need to know this. We need to know that there is a real hell. And what we believe on this life determines our eternal destiny. And there's another thing that we see here. You see, we see Lazarus, he's at Abraham's side, and we see the rich man who is in Hades, and he's being tormented. He lifts his eyes up, and he sees Abraham far off. And look, he sees Lazarus there too. And he says, Father Abraham... Now, it's important, this idea of Father Abraham, because he's appealing to his nationality as a Jew in order to get mercy. His Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But look at the response of Abraham. He said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in the manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who had passed from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Once we die, eternity is set. Hebrews says it is appointed for a man to die once and then comes the judgment. There is no intermediate place. There is no place that you can offer penances or you can offer prayers or you can do whatever else in order to get one person from one place to another. The reality is it's based upon what we believed in in this life. This life is a very short chunk of time, but it determines our eternity. That's the reality that Jesus is talking about here. And while this rich man, he invested into the things of this world and he had all the greatest things when he died, he went into torment. And the poor man, Lazarus, who knew God was his help, when he died, he went for all eternity with God. It's it's, it's a huge reversal that we see. And then we see the text. We see another reality that's shown to us here is that revelation has been given direct to us. Listen to the words of Abraham, Luke 16, 27. Uh, The rich man says to him, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What he's saying here and what they would have understood this as is Moses and the prophets is the Old Testament scripture. He says, listen, they have the scriptures. It tells them of these realities. It tells them of the Messiah. Let them hear the scriptures. So much so we have even more revelation that's been given to us in the very word of God. 
But that's not enough for the rich man. He says, no, send Lazarus back. If somebody comes and, and raises from the dead, well, then they'll listen. He says, no, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not even going to listen if somebody raises from the dead. It's interesting because the Pharisees saw Jesus operate all the time. They saw him heal sicknesses that nobody could even think about. They saw him cast out demons. They may have even seen him raise people from the dead, yet it just made their hearts harder towards him, and it made them hate him even more, and all they wanted to do was kill him, and what they actually were doing is missing their Savior, missing their Messiah. And what we have to ask today is what will we do with what has been revealed to us? What will you do with what has been revealed to you? The word of God says that every person who's ever been born misses the mark of God's holy standard, which is perfection. Because of our very nature and because of our sin, we are separated by a great chasm between us and God. And there's no way we can jump across that canyon. It'd be like trying to long jump the Grand Canyon on your own power. It's not going to happen. There's no way we can ever do enough good things in order to earn God's favor. No amount of church attendance or tithing or humanitarian efforts or being baptized as an infant or being confirmed or any of these things save you. It is surrendering your life to Jesus Christ, realizing that you cannot save yourself. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The reality is, is that the, the place of salvation is the place of surrender. The place of salvation is the place of surrender. What that means is that if you're living for this world and the things of this world and pursuing all of those things and you're sinning and you don't have sorrow over your sin and you don't care about the things of God, you don't want to read his word, you don't love people at all and you don't love your neighbors and you don't want to be part of church yet you claim to be a Christian, you better start asking the question, what are you believing in? Because there's people who went to church their whole life who are now in hell because they believed in some gospel other than the true gospel. And the truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, is that it is only through Jesus Christ that we can be saved. In John chapter 14, Jesus Christ himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. See, Abraham says to the rich man in Hades, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't even believe if somebody raises from the dead. But here's the beautiful truth, friends. We're still alive. There's still breath going into our lungs. And each one of those breaths is a gift from God. And the question is, what are you going to do with the word that's been revealed? If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, today is the great opportunity. That's why this is called the gospel, which means good news. 
The good news that you cannot earn salvation on your own. Yet there is one who was sent by God, fully God and fully man, who died on a cross. And all those who realize they cannot save themselves, turn to him, ask for forgiveness, surrender their life to him, and live for him with their entire lives, will be saved. That's a beautiful truth. And for those of you who have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, this should be encouraging in two ways. One, it should encourage us to tell people about Jesus because hell is real and heaven is real and our eternal destiny is determined about what happens here on this earth. But the other encouragement is that heaven is real. God is real. Jesus is real. And we are set in that eternity. And we are having a hope that will never fail. And this is guaranteed. And once we die, our eternity is set to be with Jesus Christ forever. Because we do serve one who died, but he resurrected from the grave. He is the very revelation of God. He is Jesus Christ. And he is the hope in any and every circumstance that you could ever imagine and he is not dead he is alive he is our living hope so let's stand and praise our Lord together thank you for joining us as we study God's word together this week we would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and to get you connected to the Woodside Bible Church family head to woodsidebible.org forward slash connect to introduce yourself today